0: And I love you too, 1940s band singer. (laughs) By the way, this is the hour of doom.
1: And bloom. That's
0: right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom's Survival Medicine Podcast. A memorable moment of mercy in a malicious world. And the number one show about medical preparedness. Mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness. It's like Grey's Anatomy. If by gray, you mean geriatric. Geriatric. And who am I? Well, I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as that old Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And here's my wonderful co-host, Nurse Amy.
1: Yes. Actually, I'm Amy Alton. I'm a nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. I'm
0: beauteous purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so sharp, she's being sued by balloon animals. <laughs>
1: <laughs> why because i popped them yeah. oh that's sad
0: on this show you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom you're going to get the unconventional medical wisdom plus at no extra charge the outrageous opinions of a man who's clearly talking to his imaginary friend <laughs> But hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for times of trouble, you're going to hear it right here, but first got to listen to this.
1: All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available.
0: Or don't if a little killer virus zombie rampage doesn't bother you, but answer me this, Who's going to keep your family safe and healthy when the you-know-what really hits the fan and the hospitals are out of commission, the doctors are gone, and someone you care about is sick or injured? Well, it ain't me. I'm just a lonely voice in the wilderness. It's you, friend. You can bet when it's least expected, you're going to be elected. So, So get off your duff and learn some stuff before the poop hits a propeller. And why not? Get some medical supplies while you're at it. I know where you can find some, do you, Amy?
1: Absolutely. store.doomandbloom.net. We handpack your kits, by the way, after you order them. They are not gathering dust on shelves.
0: Packed in the USA. That's right. I want to mention that the Book Excellence Award winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook still ranks 4.8 out of 5, over 2,700 reviews, and is still high on the bestseller list throughout the country. If you haven't checked it out yet, you're going to find the black and white version on Amazon. The color version at store.doomandbloom.net.
1: This morning it was number one on all of its categories.
0: Yay! We even have a spiral version, spiral-bound version, color.
1: That you can only get at our store, though. Store.doomandbloom.net.
0: That's right. Get a special copy. Absolutely. You know, as cold and flu season approaches, families are stocking up on medications that take away some of the misery experienced by those infected by viruses. And one of these medicines is phenylephrine, a prominent nasal congestion on the market today. You may have been stocking up on over-the-counter drugs that contain phenylephrine for years. But recent studies indicate that you might as well have been taking Skittles or maybe an M&M. Peanut M&M would be best. A recent report by the FDA stated that phenylephrine, the active ingredient in many nasal decongestants, is ineffective in relieving symptoms from runny nose and other types of congestion. Phenylephrine arrived on the market in 2006, not because it was such a great medicine, but because another decongestant that was very effective, called pseudoephedrine, or pseudophed, was taken off over-the-counter pharmacy shelves. Now, why is that? That's because it's an ingredient used in the making of crystal meth, after the passage of the Combat Methamphetamine Epidemic Act of 2006, pseudoephedrine disappeared from view. And since then, meth use is no longer, thank goodness, a problem in the United States. Says nobody! <laughs> More on that later. Drug companies quickly adjusted, as they do, with the manufacturer of Sudafed actually putting out a new product that you see on the supermarket shelves today, call or pharmacy shelves today, called Sudafed PE. That's with phenylephrine as the main ingredient. Others follow suit with their own products. And indeed, there are probably about a 100 medical products, combination drugs especially, that contain phenylephrine. And they include brand names like Theraflu, Robitussin, Dristan, Mucinex. Gosh, the the list just goes on and on. There's just, I have it right in front of me. There are really more than a 100 combination drugs that use this phenylephrine that is theoretically not any better than a placebo. So who's saying this? Well, a panel... Of experts from the FDA actually took a look at the original studies supporting the use of phenylephrine as nasal decongestant. They decided that these were inconsistent and that the methodology of the studies at that time were unsound, and they do not match today's sa- standard. They actually give three clinical, large cl- clinical trials, lots of people, and indeed it seems that phenylephrine in the modern studies just does not provide evidence that it's effective as nasal decongestant. So the investigation of phenylephrine, according to MedPage Today, began as early as 2007 in response to a citizen petition. Sure enough, citizens can petition the FDA that a particular drug may not be useful or may be harmful. Now, big pharma pressure held off these reports for more than 15 years. And in that time, imagine how much money the American taxpayer, the American families, have been spending buying an ineffective drug. A consumer study of 100,000 households revealed that about half of them purchased medications containing phenylephrine over the course of the year. The likelihood isn't that your medicine cabinet right now that you have this drug as part of, let's say, DayQuil or, or NyQuil or other kinds of cold and flu meds. Interestingly, pseudoephedrine, the similar sounding active ingredient in original Sudafed, similar sounding to phenylephrine, that is, is still considered very effective in the relief of nasal congestion and has always been available, always been available, even if they took off the shelves, despite its utility in the making of methamphetamine. It's always just been behind the counter at the pharmacy. All you have to do is ask for it and not request 10,000 tablets. What you need to do is bring your driver's license as Sudafed purchases are documented by the government. You actually have to sign for them. Now, despite the FDA's panel report, the FDA, at present, still allows a purchase of phenylephrine products. Now, while I expect them to eventually take them off the market, it probably won't happen for a while. You may have to deal with this winter using some of these medications that have phenylephrine, but I would recommend not doing that. I would recommend looking for pseudoephedrine. So you've got to look at those ingredient lists of your medicine cabinet's nasal decongestants because you might have some products there that are shooting blanks. Someone in your family is probably going to catch a cold or worse in the next few months, so the smart family medic is going to stock up on pseudoephedrine, not phenylephrine. Just ask the pharmacist for original pseudoephedrine. That's the real deal. It's still over the counter and just behind it. Well, if we're going to talk about the medicines that are going to be used this cold and flu season, well, I mean, I think that it's very important to discuss the actual infections that are going to be causing that miserable Sensation that you get when you have a cold or flu or res- other respiratory infection. The things that you have to look out for is what the what we call the tridemic: the flu, COVID, and respiratory syncytial virus. So they're all a concern, and we're actually hearing a lot about respiratory syncytial virus, which is something actually that a lot of people don't know about. So, what is RSV? respiratory syncytial virus. While many have personal experience with the flu or COVID, a lot of people don't have experience with respiratory syncytial virus. Well, this year, they actually might. It's funny because it's strange for a virus so contagious that almost all children get the infection by age two. It usually presents as a mild cold, although it can be life-threatening to premature infants. Now, this year, it's severe enough to have parents worried, and it should because RSV is the second leading cause of death during the first year of a child's life after believe it or not, malaria. I guess that's worldwide. RSV isn't just a children's virus, it can affect adults as well. And those over 65 can develop pneumonias requiring hospitalization. Orange County, California declared a health emergency a while ago due to a surge in cases. So what they do is they test the phlegm and mucus for RSV, and it turned out that every time they checked it, at that time, it was positive about 20% of the time. That's a pretty high value. And it's up from about 6 to 7% a year ago and about 1% the three years previous to that. So a lot of a respiratory syncytial virus is going around mostly in kids under age five. Like a cold virus, respiratory syncytial virus affects your nose, eyes, throat, and possibly your lungs. It spreads like a lot of airborne viruses from droplets when you cough or sneeze and, and it gets in someone's eyes, nose, or mouth. Another way to get RSV is from direct contact, such as kissing the face of an infected child or touching a surface that's contaminated with the virus. It can live on surfaces for a period of time. There are various strains of RSV, making it unlikely you'll become immune because people seem to get it. Some people even get it more than once in the same year. So the symptoms usually begin about four to six days after infection, and they include nasal congestion, coughing, sneezing, sore throat, earache, fever, and muscle aches. Well, I mean, guess what? Cold and flu season, those are the symptoms that you get. You might wind up having RSV instead of the flu or instead of a cold. Infants are difficult to diagnose sometimes, but you'll notice that your child will have a lack of energy, will have a poor appetite, might be wheezing somewhat. Indeed, it's the most common cause of pneumonia in kids under one year of age. There's no cure, vaccine, or even a specific treatment for RSV. The caregiver has to perform measures that relieve the symptoms. Unfortunately, that involves possibly giving them phenylephrine, but you want to make sure you give them medications that will work. So consider pseudoephedrine, but look at the label to make sure it can be used in kids that age. Fortunately, most infections with respiratory and stintial virus go away on their own after one or two weeks. One basic way to help is to encourage good hydration. Now, those who become dehydrated easily, like very young infants or the elderly, they're going to have the worst outcomes. You want to manage fever, muscle aches with fever and pain meds like... Acetaminophen or maybe ibuprofen, but you want to avoid giving aspirin to children under the age of 20 because there is a risk of a rare but serious disease called Ray syndrome. It causes all sorts of nerve problems and things like that. It can can kill you. Symptoms of respiratory syncytial virus that raise the level of concern include shortness of breath, chest or stomach pain, vomiting, and dehydration. You have anybody in your household who has that this winter? You get them to the hospital. These patients require oxygen, IV hydration, and sometimes very advanced care. It's hard to keep from catching an RSV virus. I mean, just as hard it is to avoid a cold. You have to follow a strategy known as respiratory hygiene, which helps to lower the risk for all of these respiratory type infections. You wanna cover your mouth and your nose when you're coughing or sneezing. You wanna have tissues or another type of barrier available at all times. If none's available, you have to cough or sneeze into your elbow or your upper arm. Keep no touch trash containers available so you can dispose safely of tissues and other materials that may have virus on it. You want to wash your hands or use a hand sanitizer whenever you touch your mouth or nose. A lot of people do that without thinking, so you definitely need to have a hand sanitizer around. You probably have some left over from the COVID epidemic. You want to also provide materials for hand washing in areas where infected persons may be housed. So if you're going to be taking care of somebody, you want to have the ability to wash your hands right before and right after. Symptomatic patients should wear masks, believe it or not, here we go with the masks again, but they should indeed wear masks if they're sick, and they should avoid contact with healthy individuals. You want to keep infected persons away from high traffic areas in your house too. If you can put them in a a room and in the corner of your house, well that's probably better. By the way, these precautions are really good advice for any outbreak of respiratory infections, including RSV, the flu, or COVID, or even the common cold. Uh, Hopefully, These RSV cases are not going to be a big deal this year, but even so, close observation of your children, and especially your elderly relatives, is going to be important to prevent severe cases from leading to bad outcomes. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hello, citizen. Are you feeling low? Don't have it like you used to? Has your get up and go, got up and went? Well, consider the wholesome goodness of Preblaxion Balance, a healthy mix of fruits, vegetables, sleep aids, and Alzheimer drugs in one tiny capsule. Made from probiotic macronutrients, which are processed down to a fine ash, Prevlaxium Balance will give you the pep you need to run that marathon and get a good night's sleep 10 minutes later. Mix with water and you can use it to seal that hole in your canoe. Prevlaxium Balance, your natural road to good health, a better night's sleep and a higher IQ, available wherever cure are sold. Okay, well let's talk a little bit about something else that could be related to cold and flu season. How about headaches how many of you out there have gotten headaches as a result of getting a cold or flu or other type of respiratory infection let's face it medical issues that confront the family medic on or off the grid can be obviously life-threatening such as a heavily bleeding wound or seemingly benign such as a headache a headache might not appear to be of much consequence especially if you're being chased by a grizzly bear it can however be a sign of an imminent threat such as a stroke Headache is one of the most common symptoms that you're going to face as a medic in survival situations, but you might be surprised to know that brain matter itself doesn't really have any pain receptors. There are several structures around the brain that do, however, such as muscles, blood vessels, and sinuses. When stimulated, nerves associated with these structures can indeed transmit pain signals to the brain, resulting in a headache. Headaches are common complaints of flu syndromes and many other illnesses. That's really why I'm talking about them today. There are almost more causes for headaches, though, than you can reasonably write down. They include dehydration, stress, hunger, sinus or ear infections, sleep deprivation, teeth grinding, hormonal changes, coffee or alcohol excess, or coffee or alcohol withdrawal after coffee or alcohol excess, exposure to environmental toxins, adverse reactions to medicine, and a lot more. Evaluating headache involves determining what the symptoms are, the risk factors, uh, for example, let's say high blood pressure, what makes it better or worse, and indeed what you find on a physical exam. The part of an examination which evaluates the nervous system is called the neurological exam. Check reflexes, strength, sensation, movement, balance, coordination, vision, and hearing on both sides. It's especially important to notice any differences from one side to the other. Now, there are different types of headaches once you've determined that The neurological exam is generally normal. That patient is not currently having a stroke or anything like that. You're going to have to determine what kind of headache that you're dealing with. The various types include tension headaches, migraine headaches, sinus headaches, and headaches that might be related to other medical conditions. Let's talk about tension headaches first. By far, the most frequently seen type of headache is the tension headache. Although the cause for tension headaches hasn't been established definitively, it may be caused by spasms of the muscles of the neck and head, anxiety, abnormal posture, or any of a number of other issues. Stress appears to be the initiating factor in many cases. Tension headache is usually seen bilaterally, that means on both sides, and or the back of the head and neck. Sufferers report a dull ache and the sensation of a tight band of pressure around the forehead. Neck and shoulder muscles may also be involved. Now, tension headaches last about a half an hour usually, but they can last up to a week. Oh my gosh, I hope not. Treating a tension headache involves relaxation techniques and maybe NSAIDs like ibuprofen, Advil, and some people feel relief simply by taking some Tylenol. Tylenol may also help, but excessive use of of medications, however, that can lead to what we call rebound headaches where the headache pain returns when off the drug, sometimes worse. A number of prescription medicines like naproxen or even stronger drugs have been used in severe cases. Now, if muscle spasms expected, there are prescription medications like cyclobenzaprine, that's called Flexeril, that might be useful. Relaxation techniques include things like massage, regular exercise, yoga, meditation, deep breathing, things like that. Cold packs that are applied to the affected area, they may help. There's biofeedback training. That's another way to reduce stress that can cause a tension headache. This method uses devices that monitor heart rate, blood pressure, and muscle tension. They then attempt to give you feedback to help control some of the factors that led to the headache. Counseling, also called cognitive therapy, may help by allowing you to voice your stress and maybe find ways to deal with it. Other alternative therapies may play a part in dealing with tension headaches. Some attest to the effectiveness of acupuncture as a therapy, for example. Others use herbal teas. Herbs that have sedative and antispasmodic properties may help relieve the pain of tension headaches. So you might consider teas made from valerian, skullcap, lemon balm, or even passionflower. There are herbal muscle relaxants that can possibly help. Uh, Rosemary, chamomile, and mint teas are popular options. Now for external use. Some alternative healers recommend lavender or rosemary oil. Massage each temple with one or two drops as needed to feel better. I'll bet you have your own home remedy for tension headaches. If so, make sure you let me know what works for you. You can always contact me at drbonespodcast at Now let's talk about migraine headaches. Migraines are a disorder that affects, gosh, nearly about 15% of the world's population. That's a lot of people. And it's characterized by repetitive episodes of moderate to severe headaches. In general, it's more common in women than men and starts often as a teenager or young adult and reaches a peak in the late 30s or early 40s. The exact cause of migraines is a matter of some debate. They're thought by some to be related to spasms in the blood vessels, Others believe that environmental factors are to blame, uh, and still others believe that some kind of misfiring of nerve cells. There may be some genetic aspect as well, as they seem to run in families. There are four phases to a migraine, although not everyone experiences all of them the prodrome, which occurs hours to days even before the headache, the aura, which immediately precedes a headache, and the pain phase, which is the actual headache. And then there's a, what they call the postdrome, the effects experienced following the end of a migraine attack. Let's talk about the prodrome. Prodromal symptoms occur in the majority of migraine sufferers. They represent essentially a premonition that there's a migraine in your future. Prodromes can start anywhere from two hours to two days before the actual headache and include all sorts of symptoms like mood swings, fatigue, stiff necks, GI irregularity, increased sensitivity to noises or smells, food cravings, all sorts of things like that. Then there's the aura. A prodrome may be followed by an aura, and then an aura is an unusual sensory effect that usually precedes the headache, but is not uncommonly part of the headache itself. Symptoms can be strange visual phenomena, which are pretty common, uh, unusual sensations, and other irregularities. Many people experience their own set. Then there's the actual headache. The actual headache, the pain phase, can last up to 72 hours and has certain signs and symptoms. They usually are one-sided, they're throbbing in nature... Uh, nausea-inducing, sometimes causing vomiting and other GI symptoms. They can induce pain when you look at a bright light. They can cause other visual changes such as blurring, lights, and color phenomenon, and they are made worse usually by physical activity. So a lot of people will have to lay down in a dark, quiet room. These symptoms can be individual in nature, and different persons will experience different symptoms. For example, in a significant minority of cases, the pain is on both sides of the head, and it involves the neck uh, in others, Uh, then some people have dizziness and confusion as part of the symptom complex. Then there's a prodrome. After the headache has subsided, a lot of people report soreness and a foggy feeling that is similar to a hangover for a time, as well as weakness or other symptoms. As I mentioned, initial treatment for a mild migraine simply involves bed rest in a dark, quiet room and maybe some Advil or acetaminophen for pain. Now, if that fails, you have to consider a combination drug, maybe Something like acetaminophen, aspirin, and caffeine. Actually, caffeine is known to have beneficial effects. There are some older medications like ergotamine, sometimes combined with caprogot. These are old medications used for migraines, and they're still prescribed by a lot of doctors. It's important to know that some of these meds can cause spasms of the coronary artery. So if you have a high risk of heart attack, well, they may not be for you. Another family of drugs that work for migraines is the tryptin family, the most popular being something called sumatriptin, otherwise known as Imitrex. These are effective against both pain and nausea in the majority of patients and are often given when simpler treatments fail. Taken in combination with naproxen, that's also called the leave, by the way, in uh, the U.S., they're even stronger in their effectiveness. Now, there are some significant medications that are thought to have preventative effect against migraines. They include valproate, metoprolol, topiramate and others. You might talk to your family doctor about them if you indeed have a lot of problems and indeed the you know what has not yet hit the fan. We're going to be talking about other aspects of headaches in future shows, so this is not the end of this subject.
1: Hey, Nurse Amy here. Today I want to talk a little bit about herbal medicine. I know I've been doing little segments on different types of medicine, you know, herbal remedies, but Um, I want to break away from that just for a minute and talk about quality control because I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, is this company that I'm buying this from? Are they reputable? You have to do a little bit of research. Um, I have actually met the folks from Mountain Rose Herbs. I know it's a small company. I know it's family run and they are very, very particular about where they source their medicines and their herbs from they don't just go out and buy in bulk from random companies they research the farms the locations were pesticides used in that area at any point they are really really meticulous about who they get their herbs from they grow some themselves but they know where the land is and, and what's happening in that area, and and whether or not things might be contaminated. So I really love Mountain Rose Herbs. They make things in small batches. They're not a huge manufacturing. They make sure there's no contamination. They're just really, really particular. So I, I can't say enough about them. They have a wide variety. They have bulk herbs. If you're looking to stock up on dried herbs, they have... Essential oils that I just can't say enough about again, they're really into purity you will if you know essential oils, you will notice you'll notice the color, the smell, um, how it looks on your skin. It is just really a great quality. Another company that I've dealt with for a few years doesn't make essential oils in singulars or sell bulk herbs, but uh, this is actually the lady named Katie who makes my organic salves that I sell. And we put together the formula, of course she was incredible with recommending the ingredients for the particular issue that I wanted the salve to take care of. Her company is named WildGraceApothecary.com and again, her name is Katie. You'll you'll see um, her information on that website. She's mostly doing on that website skincare. So you will find soothing balms, things for sleep, things for rosation, eczema, things for acne. She's really doing like a skincare line: um, masks, serums, moisturizers, things like that so if you have any kind of you know skin issues and you're really looking for something and not necessarily store-bought but something that's you know kind of made with love and and care uh, you might want to check out wild grace apothecary of course mountain rose herbs also does skincare line i mean they have just an unbelievable book if you get their um their catalog and the pictures and the descriptions are so precise, where each of the herbs comes from. And it's just, it's just amazing. But, so let's talk a little bit about quality control now that I've given you a couple of sources for things that you might wanna purchase. Um, making the most of herbal medicine means really ensuring that the herbs and the herbal products that are, are used, are used on you or used on your family, are good quality they're properly grown, they're well dried, they're correctly pressed, and they're within their cell date. Because these things do have an expiration date. You know, a lot of times we talk about medications and the fact that most of those expiration dates don't mean a lot. When things are not chemically made and they're just natural, they can break down. You know, you know, you look at a piece of fruit You buy a lemon, it's not going to be the same lemon a month from now that it was the day you bought it. So natural products tend to break down. It depends on how you store it, it depends on how it was processed. If you're buying dried herbs again, were they properly and completely dried? It's the remaining humidity that's going to break those down faster. When they're dried properly, they're going to last a lot longer. Pay attention to how long they recommend that you store them. Do your research on different types of herbal remedies and how long you can store them. And again, it depends on just like with food storage, your temperature, your humidity. You know, did you open the bag up? Just you know, thinking you're going to check it, and now you've allowed some air that wasn't in there before that might have some humidity into that bag. Did you re-vacuum seal it? You know, so how you store things are really important. Um, so check those things. Um, using poorly qual- poor quality herbal produce is too often just really a waste of money. I, you can find things on Amazon that are super cheap, but are you really getting what you bought? It, who is that company that's standing behind it? Because a lot of these companies I see on Amazon are just like really random words. I don't even know if they're LLCs or they're true companies or they've just made this company name up to sell stuff on Amazon and it's somebody completely different, most likely in China, unfortunately. So you just don't know really what you're you're getting. I do know Mountain Rose Herbs is in Oregon. They you know, they, they know where they get their stuff from. Even if they get it from other companies, they they know that that's quality stuff. So don't, don't go with the money. Think about, is this something that's really important to my health? If it is, then you may want to invest, I mean, a, a, just a few more dollars. We're not talking about hundreds of dollars more. But just that few extra dollars, it's like the tourniquets. I don't know if... Joe's talked about tourniquets recently, but he did an article um, on fake tourniquets and how they're being sold on Amazon. And, you know, they'll be sold for 3 for $18 or $4 for $20. There is a zero chance you're getting an official, let's just call it the cat tourniquets, that are brought in to this country Sold through North American Rescue. That's where I source them. I know that those are the ones that the military are using. And if the military aren't using that, that's because the purchasing agent went cheap and bought the cheap ones. And I did hear stories from military guys that they were given the cheap versions because somebody... Higher Up was trying to save money. I don't know if they did it as a scam. They billed for the you know North American Rescue prices and then bought the eBay or the Amazon ones and then pocketed the rest of the money. Oh, this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but you know that stuff happens? Oh, yeah, that toilet was $1,000. It was really $200 and the $800, well, we just might never know where that went. So buy the better ones. The tourniquets, if you find a cat tourniquet for really less than $30, around $30, it's not a cat tourniquet. It is not a real one. That is a knockoff. Somebody had them made in China at some factory. Who knows making them with what kind of thread or material they they do a really good job of making them look similar you know they do the red tip they they velcro look similar but when it comes down to the actual use and you tightening that thing up on somebody and you've got to get it really tight because they are bleeding to death and something breaks or malfunctions you're gonna wish you spent that extra what $15, $20, $25. Let's say you found one for $5 and you have to spend $30 to get the real one. Was $25 worth losing the life of possibly a loved one and maybe a good friend or even a stranger? You know, maybe that person was going to do something really good in their life, but you used a cheap tourniquet. So cheaper is, is not always better. Just pay attention to quality in life with everything food included but it's really vital for herbal medicine without a guarantee of the correct herb or of the right quality that's being used it's really hard to be confident the medicine that's made out of this will prove effective so you're starting off with poor ingredients you know if you're baking a cake and you start off with you know terrible ingredients that don't taste right and that are fake and not pure your cake isn't going to taste good just not going to work out right so start with quality in fact that's one reason why the medical profession has generally preferred conventional medicines to herbal medicines because of this difficulty of guaranteeing the highest quality in let's say there's a remedy with a combination of essential oils five or six essential oils that every time that particular quote medicine or remedy is produced that it's as high a quality as the thousand before it. Because what if the place they were buying it from suddenly starts using pesticides or doesn't care about how it's growing, doesn't care about that as much, or maybe there were poor conditions while it was growing. That also matters. The conditions of the plant while it's growing, the amount of sunshine, the amount of rain, um, did it have worms that were around that were giving it worm castings and feeding it lots of nutrients? Did it have good mycorrhizae fungi, which helped feed the roots of pretty much 95% of all plant life on this earth? You know, did it have that feeding it adequately? Was it stressed at some point and didn't get the nutrients that it needed? So, therefore, it couldn't produce a quality herb. So if any of those ingredients are poor, then the result is not going to be exactly the same as maybe the batch before it or the batch after it. And that's a problem. You know, if you cannot guarantee 100% that every single pill or every single um, jar of, of oil is exactly the same and of the same quality, how can someone prescribe that? They don't know, so that's why traditional medicine has really been leery of recommending some of these things. I know there's a whole big pharma thing and money and yes, I, I don't even want to go into that right now, but that's a whole that's a whole nother ball of yarn there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to unwind that right now, but you guys know what I'm saying. There's there's that part too. Big pharma just doesn't isn't gonna be able to trademark any of this stuff or patent any of this stuff and have an exclusive you can't have an exclusive market if you're combining carrot seed oil and um i don't know olive oil with you know some herb st john's warts st john's warts so they're just not going to do it maybe someday somebody will invest that money and they don't care about money and they'll put some actual medicines that doctors regular doctors will prescribe anyway moving on um oh and by the way i'm using this uh, book that i love that the one i've used for talking about the herbal remedies natural health encyclopedia of herbal medicine the definitive reference to 550 herbs and remedies for common ailments and it's an excellent book i love it the Descriptions are great. The pictures are amazing. So you can actually see the herbs. So if you've got something, you make sure that you know exactly what that is. It really helps identify things. So anyway, that's the source of, of what I'm talking about. A 1998 U.S. survey of products derived from St. John's wort. That's funny. I was just talking about that. Um, makes worrying reading. It found a 17-fold difference in certain levels of an of one of the constituents in this herb in capsules available over the counter. Many of the capsules did not contain, therefore, what it claimed on the label. Exactly an example of what we're talking about. That's scary. That is really scary. I don't think Mountain Rose Herbs does that, so that you can trust. There are several reasons why this happens. Some of these we've just talked about. The herb may have been poorly harvested, dried, or stored. Old and decayed material or even the wrong herb may have been used. Or the manufacturing process could be at fault. In each case, the lack of attention to quality results in a product with reduced or no medicinal value at all. Scary stuff. So the bottom line is make sure you know who you're buying from, what you're buying and whether they've been in business for a long time and have a good reputation.
0: Okay, now for a complete switch of gears here. You know, in survival settings, when violence is commonplace and the rule of law is non-existent, armed conflict between two survival groups, that's a real possibility. Such confrontations are likely to involve firearms, leading to major injuries in situations where there's no available medical infrastructure. This type of trauma, which relates to the effects of bullets and other projectiles, is called ballistic Now, during the Civil War, the likelihood of ballistic trauma to the chest or abdomen proved fatal in about 70% of cases. Now, we're going to have to expect similar results in primitive survival conditions if we don't have access to advanced medical care. Now, for that reason, it may be wise to consider including body armor as part of your survival storage. Body armor has been used throughout history. The introduction of high-velocity firearms, however, around the time of the Renaissance negated the protective advantage of mail and plate armor like the Knights wore. Now, as such, body armor fell out of favor with a few exceptions for combat purposes until the latter half of the 20th century. Now, how does body armor work to protect you? Body armor works by trapping a bullet in protective fibers and dispersing its energy throughout the entire vest, thereby slowing and flattening the bullet. Each layer of webbing slows the round until it deforms and stops completely. The impact is spread throughout the vest, causing the wearer to experience it over a larger area. The projectile itself, however, fails to penetrate the body. That's the important thing because it prevents the worst, but not all, injuries. It's important to know that a bullet causes a lot more damage than simply the hole it creates. While the protective capabilities of body armor may ensure that the risk of lethal injury is very low, the shock wave caused by the bullet can damage tissue by indenting the side of the armor that actually is touching the body. This is known as backface deformation, and even today it's an issue not fully addressed by even the most modern uh, armor. Backface deformation occurs most commonly with ammunition that mushrooms like hollow points or high-velocity rifle rounds that spin and yaw. We'll talk about ballistic trauma in general at one point in the future. Now, there are different types of body armor. There are two specific types, soft and hard. Soft body armor is useful for its lightweight nature. It's protective against handgun rounds, but probably won't stop a rifle round. Hard body armor is characterized by rigid plates, which are protective against even rifle rounds, and that's most commonly used by the military and police tactical units. Soft armor is usually manufactured from woven synthetic fibers and can be worn by itself or for more protection combined with hard armor. In these combos, a soft armor plate backer is usually put behind the ballistic plate in an effort to avoid blunt trauma from the bullet's impact. With hard armor, plates are one of three basic types. Ceramic, steel with fragmentation protective coating, and synthetic fiber-based laminate. These hard armor plates may be designed to be used by themselves or with soft armor backers. High-pressure lamination using very high molecular weight polyethylene, that's another option. Manufacture often consists of tightly weaving strong ceramic or plastic fibers in a perpendicular fashion. When these fibers are twisted and interlaced, they strengthen each other and provide protection from all directions. The armor can then be possibly coated with resin or other materials to increase the density and strength. Now there are different types of protection afforded by body armor. Ballistic protection, that's protection against firearm projectiles. Stab protection, which is protection against direct attacks with Sharp weapons such as knives and spike protection, which is protection against sharp weapons like ice picks, needles, things like that. Today, there are vests that provide spike and stab protection, especially useful for, let's say, corrections officers. Now, who actually determines the level of protection and sets the standards here? That is the National Institute of Justice. They're addressed, at least in the U.S., the National Institute of Justice, which is part of the Department of Justice, has the responsibility of testing body armor and establishing all the standards. For ballistic rounds, the NIJ, we call the National Institute of Justice the NIJ, resistance standard classifies body armors by level of performance against various types of ammo. NIJ's test protocol requires a bullet to not perforate the vest and give some protection against blunt trauma. Now, how does the NIJ arrive at its standards? The department takes samples of commercial body armor, subjects them to major wear and tear, and then follows up with long-term ballistic testing. Now, here are the current body armor levels and the examples of the rounds that they can handle. Now, if you have a level 2A, that's the lowest level, stops the 9mm or 40 Smith & Wesson caliber round from a short-barreled handgun. It has no rifle protection, however. Level 2, uh, which is one that I happen to have, stops a 9mm and a 357 magnum caliber short-barreled handgun round, but also again no rifle protection. Level 3A stops 357 SIG and 44 caliber magnum longer barrel rifle round uh, handgun rounds, but again, rifle protection is very iffy there. Level 3, a full level 3 stops things like 7.62mm full metal jacket lead core rifle rounds. As long as they're slower than 2,780 feet per second and lighter than 147 grains. A level 4, which is the maximum level, that stops the 30 six steel core armor-piercing rifle round. Wow. Level 4 can defeat bullets that are slower than 2,880 feet per second and lighter than 166 grain. Now, what about uh, 223 or 5.56 AR-style ammo? Well, that depends on the core. Lead core rounds may be stopped with level 3 armor, and steel core rounds require level 4 for reliable protection. As so you'll see SWAT teams will always have a level 4. Now how about things like 50 caliber machine gun fire? Wow. Well, if you're facing that kind of fire, you got big problems no matter what level of protection you're wearing. NIJ's Stab and Spike Protection and Resistance Armor uh, Standard specifies a minimum performance requiring for requirements for body armor to protect the torso... From slashes and stabs, from knives, spikes, uh, to ice picks, things like that. The ability of a bulletproof vest, and I'm going to put the word bulletproof in, parentheses, in uh, quotation marks here, to protect against that kind of attack depends on the type of vest and the blade. And they generally aren't designed to protect against trauma from stabs or spikes. So in other words, a bulletproof quote-unquote vest may not protect you against a particular type of stab. Knives with sharply pointed blades they're more, and ice picks, they're more likely to penetrate body armor than wider blade knives. So is heavy NIJ rated armor always superior to light? Well, if you're talking about taking a rifle round to the chest, yes, the answer is yes. But there are disadvantages to level four plates. Needless to say, it's very heavy. Yet you have reduced flexibility and comfort in bulkier armor when that leads to less ability to move quickly when needed and if you have to chase somebody or have to run away from someone. The more protective armor is also probably thicker and more noticeable, which may lead a hostile agent to aim for other parts of the body, such as maybe your head. Now, what does it feel like to get shot with body armor on? Now, I hesitate to use the term bulletproof vest when I talk about torso body armor, I mentioned that, because there are circumstances where the caliber and velocity of the round just might overwhelm it, especially with lower NIJ-level vests. So maybe let's call them bullet-resistant vests. That's much more of an accurate term. Now, while you're probably going to survive a shot to the vest, that doesn't mean you're not going to feel pain. Getting shot is often described as a sharp stinging sensation, but others, by the way, report a dull thud, and some others compare it to being struck with a baseball bat. There will always be a strong backwards force because the entire vest is absorbing the energy, and it oftentimes knocks people off their feet backwards. So it might be good to learn how to use a weapon while in supine position. A lot of people don't think about that. I should mention something about spalling. Now, spalling is basically injuries that are caused by fragmentation of the bullet on impact. These affect non-armored parts of the body, such as the arms, neck, or face. And you're, you're, unless you have specific armor for those areas, well, you know, a fragment of a bullet may certainly hit them and cause some injury. Now, The most important factors in causing injuries are the caliber of the bullet and the distance from which it's fired. Larger caliber bullets are going to deliver more energy upon impact and therefore more discomfort. Being shot at point-blank range, point range means, as you might imagine, a lot more pain. And of course, the NIJ level plays a part. Although you're going to read mostly about torso armor, there are other components that exist that protect the throat, the nape, the shoulder and groin as well, and side. Of course, helmets and shields are also made that can withstand damage from firearm ammunition. It's important to know that body armor does not last forever. Over time, the material is weakened by wear and tear. You should expect a shelf life of maybe 5 to 20 years, and that's going to depend on the materials and the conditions in which they were stored. Not everyone who prepares for disaster scenarios is going to consider body armor, but for those in areas where there are hostile neighbors, it's something that might save a life. Now, I'll say a couple other things about body armor. What makes it so solid? There are a number of different materials that have been used to produce these bullet resistant vests steel ceramic and plastic are the most common most of today's armor is made from materials like kevlar and that's a man-made hydrocarbon fiber known for high strength low weight with both chemical and cut resistance it's also flame resistant doesn't melt soften or flow when heated it's also thought to be several times stronger than steel fiber by the way there are newer products exist that claim to be even stronger than kevlar there's also UHMWPE, that's ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene. That's a polymer with a long molecular chain that allows it to absorb energy more effectively. A dyneema is one type of polyethylene fly, uh, fiber that a length of it just one millimeter thick can actually bear up to a 240 kilogram load, yet it's light enough to float on water. Then there's modern ceramic. Modern ceramics used to make a lightweight form of hard body armor consists of a layer of aluminum oxide or boron carbide or silicone carbide on the outer surface backed by a ductile fiber reinforced plastic composite or metal layer. Then of course there's steel. Solid steel plates are very protective, capable of withstanding more than one hit. They can be however heavy and restrictive. Often they're coated with materials that decrease damage caused by spalling, bullet fragmentation. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.dubinbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us. Send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
1: Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. 18 plus.